you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I am Rich. I am Henry. <laughs> and I am slowly digesting a fantastic breakfast because we are here at your place. Yeah. It's, well, I'd like to say first thing in the morning, but it's really not. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> we we had a few beers last night uh, and we're not, we're not ashamed of that. So apologies if we sound slightly croaky, but you know, you get the stuff for free. So you can't really complain, can you? <laughs> It's just true. It's true. It's um, free sounds and free um, opinions. Yes. Not necessarily good ones, but they're the ones that you get. Talking of opinions, it's your turn to pick out a band. Yes. Is it a band this week? Who have you got? It is a band. It is the Enigmatic Alt-J. I totally go with Enigmatic. <laughs> and I'm quite glad you picked them because they just vanished off my radar after being quite a big mm-hmm. part of... Well, I was interested in them. Right. So tell us about Alt-J. So Alt-J are an English indie rock band formed in 2007 in Leeds. They are Joe Newman, who is guitar and lead vocals, Tom Sonny Green on drums, Gus Unger Hamilton, keyboards and vocals, and Gwilym Sainsbury on guitar and bass. So some interesting stuff around this band. They are quite odd and quirky, I think, is, yep. is probably a bit of an understatement. Well, it's reflected in their music. Right. So they all met in Leeds at Leeds University. Newman has said he basically went to the art school there to start a band. Mm -hmm. Like that was his only reason for going to university in the first place. Um, Unger Hamilton is actually the younger brother of a guy called Ferdy, who is or was at the time head of A&R for Polydor Records. So there's obviously a music connection there now i don't know whether he used that in terms of influence but i don't think they did because they sort of got a bit of an underground culty following before they'd really ever released anything they they don't sound like a band who've been championed by a record label because they're just another band they're a bit weird Mm -hmm. and tom sunny green is i didn't know this until i started doing research for this podcast He's a long-time hearing aid wearer. So in his childhood years, he was diagnosed with something called Alport syndrome, which meant that he had kidney issues, but also started to lose his hearing. Right. So he's only got about 10% of his hearing levels, and yet he plays drums for a band. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah, you you do hear about um, drummers. Well, I've read quite a few stories of drummers who've had their hearing completely trashed by music and they can still play because you've right. got the beat and you've got the vibrations coming through the kit and the floor and wherever you're playing so yeah, yeah. it does make sense but yeah to do that as a child it's impressive yeah. put it that way so there's talk about the fact that their sound arose from the fact that they were living in student halls and they had to keep the noise down so they weren't able to use like big heavy bass drums or bass guitars or anything like that so that's why you've got this more mid to high end of the audio spectrum and most of the bass is actually something that I really love a lot of the bass is supplied by vocals yes so you get a lot of these harmonies that they do in all all of their vocals are very harmony heavy but they'll always have someone in the very bass end bringing some depth to the sound yeah it's only until you mention it now that that kind of makes sense there is no there's no deep bass drum just bashing away all the time which we, mm-hmm. we're so used to 
yeah, that's a that's an interesting spot. Yeah. So for me, Alt J were a kind of an odd thing in terms of I'd heard some of the early stuff, and they got all these quiet hipster rumblings of oh my god they're really amazing and then the album came out and it was almost this 50 50 polarized split between people who thought they were absolutely wonderful and people who thought they were fucking dreadful which album have we picked oh i haven't mentioned that have i no i don't think you have (laughs) (laughs) which one are we sorry i've gone with their debut an awesome wave yes which really is the only album of theirs that i've spent a lot of time with i wasn't overly impressed with their second album and i don't think i even noticed that the third had come out i heard some of the singles from it and recognized those as i was listening back through the back catalog and i like their third i think i've actually done it a disservice by not listening to it more is that relaxer yes i've, I've listened to relaxer as well but we'll probably come on to that okay so they were critically acclaimed. They won the Mercury Music Prize uh, for that debut album. They won an Ivan Novello Award for the album. So, you know, they're getting some big critical awards. They're not just like big, fluffy, oh, yeah, well done for selling loads of records awards. These yeah. are the awards that artists care about. And yet, The Quietest once described them as laughably vanilla. Pitchfork obviously didn't like them and gave them a 4.8 for this album. It's odd because they seem to, even within hipster alternative circles, they're very polarised. People either love them or hate them. It's funny, isn't it? I I was just reading the Pitchfork article and (laughs) it says that um, the vocal is halfway between Macy Gray and a gibbering goose, which is quite brutal. And then they they say that um, sometimes they sound like Bombay Bicycle Club playing in a submarine, (laughs) which I thought was actually quite funny. And it's brutal, but you're right, they are polarising. And there were all, I mean, there's the obvious comparisons to Radiohead where they were kind of being experimental, I guess. And so people always go, well, obviously the only artist you can compare with when you've got an experimental band is Radiohead. And it's like, come on, (laughs) that's a bit of a lazy comparison. But yeah but it, it's there. Uh, and, and I do think that's an unfair comparison because I don't think their experimentation is really anything like Radiohead's. No. They're, they're looking at very different things. So their sound is much more of, you know, they use orchestral stuff really well. They use a lot of, they use a lot of silence in their music in a way that really only the XX were doing at the same time. So you will have these notes that are just left to hang by themselves before the next piece of music comes in. And I I love that. I think in music, when silence is done well, it can be incredibly effective. Or having just a single note or a single sung vocal or a set Mm -hmm. of harmonised vocals just sitting there. Like there's acapella stuff in here and acapella is not a cool thing. I don't think anyone's ever tried to claim that acapella is cool. But the way they use it is really effective. Yeah. And... That's the ear-catching part of this album. Mm-hmm. And it's probably why they got so so much recognition and so many articles written on them, good and bad. Yeah. Because they're doing something a little bit different and they're playing with with sounds in a way that most bands don't bother with. Right. And I think there's also an element of them being, you know, they are white, middle-class British university students. And for a lot of the music press, that makes them a really easy target. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we've, got, we've had this before, haven't we? Um, Vampire Weekend. Vampire Weekend with a, with, a, with a classic. And in fact, their music isn't similar, but the way that they approach it is, I guess. They do try and create clever music and the lyrics, I guess, in, in this and the way that they, they'll write a song about quite, well, interesting things in life and interesting historical experiences, yeah. which you'll probably come on to mm-hmm. in the same way that Vampire Weekend do try to they do try to have some social commentary and some some factual references floating around. Yeah. And I don't know that I'd ever heard a song that celebrated the triangle in a way that all Jay have. Well, we should probably go on to the, just the name itself, yep. which is about triangles, isn't it? It is indeed. Explain, Alt-J. So their actual band name is... I don't know whether it's deliberately pretentious, but it's pretentious as fuck. Basically, it's the delta symbol that is the scientific symbol for change. Yeah. Change in X is delta X. And that is a triangle shape. And when you try to create that on a Mac, you need to do Alt-J. And so Alt-J became the way of saying their name even though the triangle shape, the delta shape, is actually what their name is. Fucking Mac users. Just, <laughs> they're all the same. Just get a PC and use two buttons on your mouse and then everything's much easier. How many PCs have you had to buy over the last year and a half to get one that was half usable? Two. <laughs> <laughs> My MacBook is from 2013 and it's still working and is what we're recording the podcast on. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, well, um, but yeah. So, but I think, I think, I think pretentious is a fair shout. It really is. And I don't, no, I don't know whether it's a deliberate thing to just, I don't know, set themselves slightly apart because they yeah. they were never a band that were in it to get into the music scene. They were in it to make music. So mm. they've said in interviews, people have asked them about the Leeds music scene and other musicians that they hang out with and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, we we don't just kind of hang out with ourselves and make music. I think that's a shame in a way because you hear so many bands talking about the influences and the changes in direction they've had from meeting other bands and seeing new influences and you just think it's just a little bit insular. And- yeah, it really is. But they are quite a shy, introverted group anyway. They've talked about the fact that they think that musicians tend to be at the very edges of the spectrum. You're either extremely introverted or extremely extroverted. Yes. And that's how you end up making music. I guess we can take that as read that they feel that they're on the very introverted end of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And they're, I think they're better for it because of that. Like They make really thoughtful music and I love the really thoughtful side of their music. The thing that's interesting about them in terms of that backlash is that it didn't happen in other places. So they got a lot of backlash in the British music press and British music scene for being pretentious wankers, basically, was what they were. That was what was leveled at them. But in America, they were seen as this exotic British band. So they never got any of that because they already had that. Oh, well, they are. They are exotic. They're not just like a bunch of middle class university students. So they almost didn't get the backlash in America that Vampire Weekend did, but didn't get here. I thought my own personal thought when I heard the album was that it was new and interesting mm-hmm. and I liked it. And, and so I think it's probably partly a music press that quite likes to take a band apart. But I when when I heard this album for the first time, I guess we'll go into the detail of the tracks. There's track after track after track of it interesting 
innovation and it's not revolutionary but it's interesting then you want to you want to listen more and delve into it yeah for me i absolutely agree with that i i found it to be something something completely new just an exciting new thing that i'd not really heard anything like this before and there's definitely again we've talked about this in the past none of the individual elements of the style are anything new but you've got people putting it together in a way that it's never been put together before and that's what makes it such an intriguing album and as a debut that they were recording this shit in in student university halls like the the level of quality that they've put here is is fantastic and i didn't actually check to see whether some of those recordings made it onto this album but for sure like what they're doing for a debut is really impressive yeah and again going into the reviews and i keep talking about reviews mainly because it's so there's so much (laughs) polarizing opinion here Mm -hmm. and it's it's funny the way that you've got one camp who are saying that it's this kind of interesting, cohesive new thing and the other camp going, it's a higgledy-piggledy mess. And going back to that Pitchfork review, they talk about just silly, balmy, bonkers lyrics that don't mean anything and they're talking gibberish. But then you go into the detail and you read the story behind some of the songs and it's like, no, there's like a load of thought that's gone into this. So is the Pitchfork guy just being lazy? Probably. <laughs> and and so, yeah, it's, it's two different camps and it's just interesting looking at the two of them, looking at a, the same piece of art and having completely different experiences of it. I'm of the opinion that when a, I say magazine, because I f- still think of people like Pitchfork as magazines the same as I do with Enemy, when they have reviews done like that, I always feel like you should have multiple people listen to that album. And if the original person who's supposed to be writing the review hates it, but everyone else thinks it's great, they shouldn't write the review. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's a personal tasting at that point rather than whether it's a bad album. And this is not a bad album. It's not an album that deserves a 4.8, even if you don't like the style. Yeah. I think that's, I think that is fair. I, crappy well we talked about scoring before but bands which are getting kind of threes and fours out of ten should be the bands that are doing nothing new not really applying themselves not being smart and it's just making music to jump through hoops with and this is none of that they're having a go at something totally different so you can't just pin them down because they're they're trying a a different slant and i'm certain that if you gave this album to five other pitchfork reviewers two or three of them would have given this a seven or an eight Yeah, exactly. Okay, maybe it's uh, an attention grab thing. Like, if you give an album that has got this much level of support behind it a really shitty review, that gets your publication some attention? Well, look at Kid A, which Pitchfork said was brilliant, and the rest of the music press hated, or a lot of them. I hated it. I thought, what is this rubbish? (laughs) And so, you're right. I mean, this is it's it's the same thing as musical opinion, and half the reason for doing this podcast is to (laughs) to comment on it. But yeah, so all of that stuff, the good reviews, the bad reviews, the Mercury Music Prize and the Ivan Novello Award actually led in a really sad way to one of Alt-J's most important members, Sainsbury, quit the band. Right. Just because of the pressure of success. And they talk about it being like a period of your life where you think this will be amazing. We've all of a sudden, we've got this success and we're getting awards. And they were like, no, it was, it was shit. Yeah. We weren't ready for it. We weren't ready for the attention. We weren't, it put too much pressure on. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a real shame. And different people handle pressure in different ways, I guess. And it's a shame that just exiting is a way to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. And with him leaving, that left a lot more of the pressure on their front man's shoulders. Like, yeah. So he had to take on all of that responsibility because the other guys were like, you know, it's that thing where you... You're like asking for a volunteer and everyone's sort of looking in the other direction <laughs> yes. trying not to catch their eyes. Like you're like, well, shit, I guess this is me then. It's on you. Yeah. But yeah, they have had some interesting positive things as well. Mm-hmm. So Miley Cyrus is a fan. Okay. Would never have picked her as the <laughs> one of the first people to be a fan of MJ. So she apparently started using a snippet of Fitz Pleasure in her live show and so Tom from the band sent her a message on Twitter asking if she wanted a remix of something. Nice. And she then sent the stems to 4X4, which is one of her songs. And it worked with a song that they were working on. And so they used that on a track on This Is All Yours, which is their second album called Hunger of the Pine. So you hear this I'm a Female Rebel sample, and that is Miley Cyrus interesting yeah so they yeah they've got so much more famous than i ever expected them to get when i first came across them there's something about this album that i think is is indescribable in terms of making it what it is it's Mm -hmm. so beautiful and vital and alive and it's really understated in the way that that comes across and i don't entirely know why i love this album so much it's just got this joyous happy thing about it that is indescribable. There's some complexity in there. And I I wonder if it's as simple as just having a drummer that's been told not to, just to turn it down a bit. And they've just had to fill that space with either silence or just clever rhythms and pauses, which would be a gap, which you'd normally just fill with a drum hit. I don't know. Yeah, I, I went and had listened to some of the tracks specifically thinking in terms of the percussion and the drumming in here is, it's not buried, but like you say, it's not that driving big percussion that you get on a lot of albums. So I, I personally love that stuff. So the fact that I've gone for an album that's completely the antithesis of that. It's detailed drumming. It's almost like, I mean, it, if you hadn't told me about the university halls and mm. the, the the quietness there, I would have had all sorts of other explanations, but it does sound like, okay, you guys play and I'll just drum on the side of a table with some pencils. <laughs> right. And, which, and it's like, clack, 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 that's actually the sound like in Fitz Pleasure. You can hear that little tappy drum rhythm and it probably is him just hitting a desk with some with some sticks. Yeah. I guess we should dive into the album. Let's talk about some of the songs. Uh, so I'm going to start with intro because I actually think this is really lovely and captivating in itself. As I've mentioned, use of space. This is a great example of where they do that there's just these gaps that things are allowed to hang in it's the opposite of that sort of intense driving thing that we talked about with block party it's almost it allows everything just to relax and breathe and have the space which i really like i love the warped vocals in this the fact that there's it's not a clean vocal to open the album Mm -hmm. yep and i do think that there's a subtle drive to this track that i don't think he gets credit for yeah, definitely. We've got to talk about the Ripe and Ruin slash Tessellate because these two work together. Mm-hmm. The Ripe and Ruin is an a cappella folk piece of music, basically. It's what, a minute and a half, two minutes of, of just vocals, yeah. just them singing harmonies. And the harmonies in this are 
utterly wonderful, mm-hmm. just beautiful. But it leads into probably the most famous track from the album in a way where the end of that, and then you just have this pause for a moment, and then the piano just comes in and it's this like statement pow right there, right <laughs> in your face. Yeah. Tessellates the one with triangles in, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. I love the dramatic opening for that. You have that piano start and then you have these guitars that sort of tear through it. Yeah. In a way, again, that I don't think they're given credit for some of the edgier pieces of instrumental work that they do. It's well thought through as well. Mm-hmm. This isn't just cobbled together. You can tell that they've spent a lot of time arranging this so that it has maximum effect. Yeah. Something good. Can't can't ignore this. This is possibly my favourite Alt-J track. The piano is really beautiful. Everything's so delicate. And then suddenly you get this acoustic guitar that kicks in and everything swells upwards. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of tension in here that you don't normally get in much of the rest of the album. And the way they release it is magical. That get high moment is just, just stunning. Yep. In fact, you're going through this kind of this album track and, and I'm getting worried now because I normally pick one or two and all the <laughs> a load of songs I like we haven't even come to yet. Well, I've only got three more myself. <laughs> uh, so Dissolve Me, I just love the use of space in here. Yeah. It's quite almost silent sections of this and it's them and the XX doing this stuff and just that almost uniqueness because that while they're both doing it they're using it in very different ways the xx very electronica and almost cold open spaces whereas they've got these warm pauses and gaps that just allow everything to relax fits pleasure amazing song brilliant more tension more gorgeous harmonies fuzzy bassy electronics coming through and and cutting through all of that Use of space, again, electric guitars creating light and then diving back into the dark is great on this. It's a really good track. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. I think it actually is probably is my favourite track on the album, or it's very Alt-J. So if you're kind of wondering, yeah. what do they sound like? Put on Fitz Pleasure. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and then I got to come to the last track on the album, Tarot, which I think is the one that you might have alluded to earlier with the history lesson. Yes, with, um, uh, was it one of the photographers? I can't remember now. To Gerda Taro and Robert Kappa. Kappa, that's it. So Taro was born in 1910 into a Jewish family in Germany. Not a great time to be born Jewish in Germany. In 1933, she was arrested due to political activities against the Nazis. When she was released, she fled to Paris and met Kappa, who was Hungarian-born Jewish again. He'd fled Hungary to Germany, good move, and then to Paris in 1933 as well. He was already a war photographer, so he continued doing that. They fell in love with each other, and she fell in love with that photography work and became a war photographer as well. She was one of the few women in war photography at this time anywhere. And at the age of 27, sadly, she was killed covering the Spanish Civil War. And Kappa was devastated by this because he'd lost the love of his life and blamed himself for her death because he'd introduced her to that life, yeah. basically. So he continued with the war photography, but then was killed in the Indochina War in 1954 at 40 when he ran over a mine. So both of them died covering wars. And this song is about that and about them. One thing that I love about this is that Kappa apparently, allegedly is the originator of the quote, 
if your photographs are not good enough, you're not close enough, which is something that I heard very early on when I started getting into photography. And it's a really useful thing to have in mind. Like it really, it's an interesting additional focal point when you're trying to learn. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going totally off grid now, but his photo, <laughs> Death of a Loyalist Soldier, where of the guy mid dying is an incredible photo and yeah he's right next to it the guy just being shot it's one of the most iconic photos ever i think of a of war and war photography is a very controversial art because people feel like oh well if you're a war photographer you should be helping people when mm-hmm. they're in that situation not taking photos of them but actually without seeing photos of how horrendous war is i don't know that there would have been such a drive to Try, try not to have so many wars yeah because it's outside out of mind no one cares no one cares yep anyway the song itself i love the instruments in this song so much the guitars and the strings are beautiful the use of what i thought was a mandolin is great in here it's not a mandolin okay it turns out i watched a live performance on youtube of them playing this and he's tapping the guitar strings with a piece of electrical tape right and that's how he's making that sound right okay which is bizarre and i couldn't work out whether it was just the live performance or whether that's actually what they did when they recorded the track there doesn't seem to be any definitive someone's asked them the question and they've said oh we did this but it sounds like from what i can find this is what they did for the actual thing it's just them tapping a roll of electrical tape onto the strings to make the sound that's that is very cool and we've gone through i guess when we spoke about rage against the machine and tom morello just using the whole guitar as an instrument and we talked about matt bellamy with his gluing a pedal onto the front of his guitar and playing with that and and i I just love it when when artists pick up an instrument and use it (laughs) totally differently to the way it's intended yeah yeah yeah. it's awesome and you wouldn't necessarily want that all the time but in the right place it can be brilliant and it is here this is such a great track and I love the fact that they've used it to close the album out rather than trying to shunt it up front and have that impact early on in the album. Yeah. How much have you followed Alt-J's career after this album? Almost none. So I, I was right. a massive fan of the album. I, I bought it, listened to it a lot. I really got into it. And then for some reason, I just lost track of them and I don't know whether it's because of a lack of radio play or it must have been something like that because I didn't even know that this is all yours. The uh, the 2014 album even mm-hmm. came out. <laughs> it just passed me by completely. Yeah, I didn't really listen to that at all. And Relaxer, I'd heard I'd heard singles off both of them. One of the things that strikes me is they love a cover. So, in their second album, they've got Lovely Day is a cover in there, which really surprised me. Cover of who? Not the the popular pop song. Bill Withers. No way. Yep. Yeah, what so a weird song to cover. Yeah, it's a bonus track. I have a thing about covers. If you're going to do a cover, I either want it to be a perfect, immaculate, emotional, really engaged, almost exact copy of the original, but with you giving it your all and you really feeling the emotion and the connection that the artist has with that song, or I want it to be completely reimagined and something totally new. And that's what this is. So you think about the best covers of all time, All Along the Watchtower is a complete reimagining of a track that doesn't sound anything well doesn't not sound like the original but you can hear it's not that original like it's a totally different sound to it and then probably one of my other all-time favorites is 
Nirvana covering David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World, which is very similar to the original. It's just him feeling the song. Yeah. And so those two are the examples that I think illustrate what I love about covers. They've either got to be really emotional and beautiful in the original or totally different. Yeah. Well, like when Johnny Cash covered Hurt from the Nine Inch Nails and you've got one of the most noisy, angry rock bands ever Mm -hmm. and a country artist who's an absolute legend has covered their song and has made a, I mean, my heartstrings start kind of tightening when Johnny Cash's voice comes in for her. It's yeah. incredible. And you mentioned that and the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It's such an incredible emotional song. Yeah. Jeff Buckley, Hallelujah. That's another amazing cover. He's yeah. covered um, Leonard Cohen's version and right. smashed it out of the park. And this is the thing, you need that. And that's what Alt-J have done surprisingly well here is they've taken that original track that everyone knows and loves, but they've put their own spin on it and made it sound like their song rather than like the original one more one more feeling good by muse oh yeah yes i hope nina simone would like that (laughs) (laughs) well it's a good job that tempest was on last week and not this week because feeling good is a track that is so heavily overused in the burlesque world that anyone that's been in that world as a veteran just fucking hates it every version as well can't stand it because it's the quintessential newbie beginner goes oh this is a really this lovely track yeah, yeah. Great to do <laughs> and the step beyond that is like well lots of people have done this one so i'll do the muse version instead because that'll be a bit different and it's like no that everyone that's else does been that done too. to death as yeah. well that's not their only cover so their most recent album they covered house of the rising sun and that doesn't sound anything like the original yep it's wonderful as well don't mess with the classic but that's not quite a straight cover is it it's almost an interpretation because we were listening to this last night yeah and it's not they haven't just done it word for word right yeah they they said in an interview that they were inspired by the song but they wanted to just be inspired by it and to strip it back and think about the elements of it and then create something that they would have created from those elements yeah i really like it there's other good stuff on relaxer i think i've underappreciated it as an album yeah adeline is just stunning mm-hmm. dead crush has this lovely groove going on that i really like and then pleader is a fantastic track it starts with this low urgency and then builds to a massive orchestral and choral crescendo which is classic alt j at their best are they what is that it is that the last album they've done yep that was 2017 that was the last one they've done they've only released three albums yeah they're not a prolific band, I think, because they spend so much time thinking about what they want to produce. And I also think there's an element of them being very introverted that they have to take time away from it all to recharge and recover. Yeah, get away from the, the scene a little bit. Yeah. Have you seen them play? Yes, I have seen them play live. Oh, cool. So when they were nominated for the Mercury Music Prize, I don't know if they still do this, but at the time they did a thing where they would bring artists in to play free shows so you couldn't buy the tickets you had to enter a lottery to try and get tickets okay and alt j and the maccabees were playing on the same night and i was like oh i like both of them and i really like both those albums that maccabees album was really great as well i really enjoyed that yeah when when it came out and so i was like cool i'm gonna try and get tickets i want tickets i want a pair of tickets for this for this night okay and alt j were the main reason why i was there and so I got there. There's three artists on the bill, and the 
first artist to come on stage was this really unknown artist at the time no one had really heard of called Michael Kiwanuka. Right. So Alt-Jaya, the reason why I'm a Michael Kiwanuka fan from the very early days, because I was just listening to him going, holy shit, this guy's amazing. Who the fuck is he? Yeah, awesome. That is cool. Yeah, so that's that's the only time I've seen them live, but they, they were great. I mean, they were exactly what you'd expect, which is shy bunch of guys on stage stage presence yeah very little stage presence but just such musical ability yeah and i think you don't always need stage presence if the music does all of the talking for you and for a band that produce such intricate music it's fine like you can do your your introverted thing oh yeah the number of gigs i've been to where you've seen the lead singer or the whole band completely like focusing on their work and not moving Mm. around and just concentrating because it's hard to make music in a live environment yeah and actually caring about producing a sound right because you do see some bands who was it i saw bloody mystery jets i saw them (laughs) what i mean that's your own fault that was a design who were they supporting they came on they were first support for um i can't remember where we were but the mystery jets came on and they were very much trying to do the crowd thing and it's like you're not going to get the crowd to like you because you're the first act on so just make good music and they couldn't care they were just running around and it's like it's a shambles so (laughs) but i guess my point is if a band is sitting there concentrating and focusing on making good music and producing a good sound you can't get people to get grumpy about that yeah have you seen them live no i haven't no just Uh, never had the opportunity and i think when they were producing music I was just going to noisy gigs. I was in that kind of, if there's right. a band on who's going to just blow my ears out, I'll go to that. <laughs> Fair. What about influences? Because this, I mean, they've, it's not that early on in your musical kind of experience. So right. have they taken you anywhere? I think they've led me into an appreciation of some of that more old school folk. So some of the folksy styles that they do on here are things that you'd expect from like, 19th century 18th century monks and that kind of shit Mm -hmm. like it's not the kind of folk that we think of when we think of like 60s and 70s folk music and that kind of stuff or even the new folk or punk folk it's something a bit more of a throwback even than that yeah so so there's that side of things but i think the biggest thing with this was i was having to think about this and i think they are the first band that i was listening to when they were really tiny and then all of a sudden they were just fucking massive and they were just they were being played on radio one and like all the big stations and they were on tv programs and their music was being used everywhere mm-hmm. and the previous time that i'd seen that was Coldplay, but that was a bit different because i was only 18 when that came out and it was a bit of a like you just think well maybe that's just how it all works yeah. and then you spend a decade almost a decade with bands that are tiny that appear and you're like Shearwater and the likes of that but no one ever knows who they are and you spend your entire time being frustrated trying to tell people that they should listen to these bands (laughs) and you're the only person that's going to be like yeah cool I'll have a listen to that you know we have a few other friends that are like that but the vast majority the the mainstream people don't know any of these bands and they don't care and all of a sudden I've got friends that don't really like music being like oh Jay are great and I'm like how do you know about my teeny tiny little weird band? Like how, how has this happened? And so it's almost that they brought back a bit of the potential joy of knowing that these tiny bands 
might get big. Maybe they will get big. Mm, that's cool. That's a really nice way of putting it. Um, although it did sort of take a bit of the... I had a bit of a Henry moment because I was like, oh, everyone likes all yeah. <laughs> So Yeah, don't, don't, it's, it's not a cool thing to do. Um, so, but yeah, it, I, I kind of agree. Um, I don't know. I, I find Alt-J, they're almost at kind of down the end of one of these little musical mm-hmm. avenues. I don't think there's anything beyond that. I think it's a kind of weird experimental, you know, if you've got a, like a branch of a musical tree. Yep. They're, they're one very very far out limb doing their own little thing and i love the fact they exist but they're not going to lead me anywhere right and i i think you almost had more of that slightly weird folksy what the fuck is going on part of your musical taste already because a lot of the american canadian bands that you'd, you'd been listening to for five ten years before jay started bringing stuff out like that that that's already part that's of your, your musical repertoire yeah yeah, that's true. Whereas for me, I don't know that I was quite as into the weird, quirky, folksy style of things as much when this came out. Yeah, cool. Good. Well, I'm very glad you brought this along because I had really enjoyed them, really enjoyed the album, thought it was innovative, thought, you know, obviously we weren't doing a podcast then, but they're the kind of band that you should talk about. Mm-hmm. And then they've just vanished off the radar for the last three, four years. So it's a great shout to bring them back into the limelight. It'd be interesting to see whether they bring an album out in the next year, having had the pandemic. They feel like a band that would probably have been creative during that time. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, it's an interesting set. Well, if we do get a, if they do produce something, we'll hidden track it and get that. Absolutely. Out. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us this week. If you want to catch up with us talk to us we are on the social medias we're on facebook we're on instagram we're on twitter come and say hi and let us know which side of the polarized fence you are sitting on with alt j exactly yeah thanks for listening it's been a good one cheers thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong